0: Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at the Well, good morning, church. How are we doing this morning? Good? Good. Excellent. I'm glad to be here with you guys. My name is Josh. I'm one of the lead pastors here at the District Church, and it is a joy and an honor to worship with you guys this morning. Uh, I will throw this out there. I've had more than two hours of sermon prep, so this one should probably be less than the one I did before. So, for those of you who are here, just be prepared for that. I'm just, I'm kidding. All right, just fair to throw that out there because I got more time to prep. Um, so we are going to be in Mark chapter 11, starting in verse one. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open there, Uh, and as you're doing so, I want to give you just a bit of framework of what's happening this morning. As you can see on the screen, um, we are celebrating Palm Sunday, or the triumphal entry, as we will see this morning, and if you weren't aware that today is Palm Sunday, or what that is, it's the beginning of what most liturgical calendars would call Holy Week, It's the last week of Jesus' life. As he makes his way to the cross and the grave and then ultimately his resurrection from the grave, defeating sin and death. So Palm Sunday starts this Holy Week. And this entire week itself is so important to the gospel writers that if you were to go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will see that they spend almost two-thirds of their entire book on this last week. Matthew starts this last week in chapter 21 of 28. Mark starts in chapter 11 out of 16 chapters. Luke starts in chapter 19 out of 24. And John starts, and his being the longest, to show us what this Holy Week, Passion Week, looks like, starts in chapter 12 of 21. In fact, it's one of the only stories that you will find in all four Gospels talked about by all the all the authors and that's significant it's significant for us to see that all four of these authors had something important to show us about the beginning of Jesus' last week it's also important for us to know that the beginning of this week starts the week of passover and we'll see in God's providential design How important that was for Jesus to show up making his entry and announcement known at the beginning of Passover. So if you have your Bibles open, let's start in Mark chapter 11 in verse 1. And as I'm reading, what I want to challenge you guys to do is I want you to think and try to bring yourself into the emotional atmosphere of what is happening in this passage. Right? The Israelites had not heard from God for 400 years. And this man named Jesus has been doing miracles. And there are murmurs of Him being the coming Messiah. And then this triumphal entry happens. I say that because sometimes we can read the Scriptures and take and remove emotion or remove the fact that these are people who have lives, who have been longing and waiting for the coming Messiah. We can tend to not read it in that lens, and so I hope we can do that this morning, seeing their responses and their emotions and their longing and their waiting as they see the Messiah come in to Jerusalem. So starting in verse 1, Mark writes, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, At Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it to me. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing? I'm tying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and drew their cloaks on it. And he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut out from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna, in the highest, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Let us go to him and ask him to show us more of who he is through his word. Lord, thank you for your, your grace and your mercy that you show to us your kindness. Thank you for the time of worship where we could sing our praise to you and be reminded that you are a holy God, one who invites us in, but as your scripture will show us today, you are king. You are king over all things, Lord. And I pray as we read about and hear about the triumphal entry that that will stick with us, that you are the king of kings and Lord of lords and you have come back for your people by the way of the cross. Lord, I pray that that truth would transform our lives this morning and into the rest of the week and into the rest of the year and on and on, that we would be transformed by this truth that you are king. We praise you, for it's in Jesus' name, amen. Now, the book of Mark has a very unique breakdown, and it's important for us to know this as we jump into the triumphal entry. As we take a look at this writing of Palm Sunday and we walk through the book of Mark, the book itself is broken up in three different sections. The first seven and a half chapters, what we find is that Mark is showing the Israelites, the disciples, those who have been waiting and longing for the Messiah to come, he is here. The one that you have been waiting for and longing for, he has come and his name is Jesus. Jesus. And then we find in the second or middle section, starting from the end of chapter 7 all the way until chapter 10, we see Jesus preparing his disciples for what is to come and to embrace the truth that he is, in fact, the Messiah. And the third part of the book, and this is important for us to see this morning, is made up of chapters 11 through 16. And what Mark is saying is that Jesus is that Messiah that you've been looking for but he's not the kind of Messiah that you think he is. You see, you thought he was coming to transform your society. You thought he was coming to take power from Rome, to use his authority and control as the Messiah, to bring muscle, to make the Jews and Israel the highlight of the world. But Mark is saying, no, that's not the case. What he's coming to do is he's coming to die. He's coming to secure his kingdom. Yes, that is true. But not in the way that you think he's coming. He's coming by the way of the cross. And here's why this day is so significant to all four of the gospel writers, to those who are there singing and shouting praise to Jesus and to us here today. When you read through the gospel of Mark and you read through all four gospel accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, what we find is that Jesus deliberately tries to quiet those who are around him. And what I mean by quiet is when he reveals himself through healing or through uh, freeing someone from demonic oppression or even to his disciples, often what he does is he tells them, don't reveal who I am. Don't reveal my identity just yet or until the time has come. Well, guess what? The time has come. In the triumphal entry, Jesus, who seemingly tried to keep his identity hidden, will put it on full display for all of Israel, all of Rome, and all who are there for Passover to see. And there are some symbols that people pick up on as we will walk through this text that they recognize Jesus is making the announcement that the King has come. The Messiah King has come, and he's come for his people. You see, Jesus knew what he was doing as he came into Jerusalem on this donkey. And as we'll see in, the mo- in a moment, by riding on this donkey or this mule, as you'll see in the other gospel texts, Jesus was not only fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9-9, claiming honor to his royalty, but to those in the crowd who knew their Old Testament well, And here's my pitch. We should be knowing our Old Testament well also. But to those who knew it well in the crowd, this symbol of Jesus riding on a donkey into Jerusalem meant that he was making the claim that he was king. But what's interesting and and why this symbol makes so much sense is because in the Old Testament, when we look at Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, oftentimes when they are trying to get the people of God to understand something and they aren't hearing the prophet's words, what they do is they have an act of symbolism. Over and over, we see dramatic actions being taken by the prophets to get the attention of God's people. And here, Jesus being the greatest prophet, his actions were no different he's taking a perfect symbol to show that the king has come. Entering Jerusalem on a donkey, Jesus was unmistakably and publicly declaring himself to be the son of David and the rightful king of Israel. But there's an even bigger event that I want you to connect in Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem with this claim. You see, in 1 Kings Chapter 1, we find the act of riding on a mule into Jerusalem was the sign that Solomon was given to proclaim that he was the successor of David, the king of Israel. We see this in that first chapter of 1 Kings, that the ride on David's mule is there emphasized and highlighted three times. Now, the backstory of what 's going on in First Kings One just shortly is that one of david's kings or one of david's sons, Adonijah, is trying to take advantage of his father 's weakness, right He sees that his father's getting old, he hasn 't appointed a king yet, and so what he does in secret is try to say hey i 'm going to be king i 'm going to try to get some security and i 'm going to help all of Israel to see that i 'm the king and what 's interesting as well as beautiful is that Bathsheba steps in and she begins to say, David, your son is trying to take over the kingdom but the promised one, Solomon, who you said would be your successor, you haven't made an announcement. We need to do something. You need to get off your behind and make your successor known. I love how the Bible highlights Bathsheba being a part of showing David's successor coming in. Especially in light of walking through Ruth recently. So what David does is he instructs Solomon, he instructs Zadok, the priest, Nathan, the prophet, all three of them, to blow their trumpets, to say, long live King Solomon, and to put Solomon on a mule, and to announce his royalty and his kingship over Israel. Now, of course, this doesn't make everyone happy. Adonijah is upset His supporters flee because they are in fear. But this is a crucial event in Israel's history. It's important for us to know, and it connects why the triumphal entry is such a big announcement as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Because up until that time, there had not been a coronation ceremony. And this was David's royal coronation of his lineage starting in First Kings 1. And it then establishes all other of Jerusalem's coronations for kings. And so in this one act, Jesus is symbolically proclaiming himself the son of David. The people in the crowd would have known what he was doing that he is saying that I am the king the the king of David in his line I am the restorer of the fallen house of David and this is why we should praise this is why we should have joy this is why it's appropriate for all of the gospel accounts to show us that those who are in the crowd are singing a song of triumph We sang this morning, Hosanna, Hosanna, that's in parallel to Psalm 118, that is a psalm of triumph, that the King has come, and we have victory. So on this Palm Sunday, I want you guys to see that this is what it is all about. This is what the triumphal entry is all about. Heck, this is even my main point this morning, that Jesus is King. Jesus is King. In fact, I'm going to go a little old school Baptist with you. I want you guys to say that with me this morning. Jesus is King. As one author puts it, Jesus, who is God our Savior and Redeemer, is the sovereign Lord and King over all the universe. He did not come to Jerusalem, catch this, to be made King. He came to Jerusalem triumphantly as the King. And was only going by the way of the cross to secure his kingdom. But he was already king. Our Lord Jesus Christ is, always was, and always will be king over all. And in that, we as the people of God can rejoice. And this is Jesus' great public announcement as he triumphantly enters into Jerusalem, that the king has come, and by the way of the cross, he is coming to secure and redeem his kingdom for himself. And so this is why Palm Sunday is so important. But I want to show you through through the text, through Mark's gospel, what kind of king do we have? What kind of king is Jesus showing us that he is. Well, again, to follow, and I was very excited about this, you can ask Dwayne and Ransford, to follow a very Baptist procession. I have three Ps for you this morning. <laughs> Jesus comes in power, Jesus comes in peace, and Jesus comes in presence. He is the king of power, king of peace, and king of presence. So let's take a look at the king of power. Going back to verse 1. Mark writes, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethagi and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the valley in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And when they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, what are you doing untying this colt? And they, they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Now there are a few things that I, I, I could highlight, maybe even spend an entire sermon on from this passage about Jesus the Messiah King. But for the time's sake, I want to elevate one thing. The absolute power and sovereign authority of Jesus as he sends his disciples to this cult. What I find beautiful in this story, as well as how the Holy Spirit has brought us to this text this morning, is in this passage we see the complete sovereignty and providence of God in preparing this cult to be ready for Jesus to enter into Jerusalem. And if you guys were here the last six to seven weeks when we walked through Ruth, we were able to see the beautiful providence of God as he orchestrated the redemption of his people through Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi. And so I hope you see that this providence is still here, that this isn't just a story or happenstance, or that Jesus knew these people and so he was asking for their donkey Or that he made some type of secret arrangement that they weren't to put anybody on this donkey. No, this is the sovereign authority of God on display here in this story. He put the cult where it needed to be. Jesus even described to A.T. what the response would be when his disciples went and asked for this cult. But we also see that he has complete and absolute power over the will of every man in this story. such a beautiful God, such a wonderful Savior and King has this power. And what I want us to take from this truth is two things. That the God who has this providential plan and power has power to save. He is, as the Old Testament would describe, He is mighty, to save there is no sin there is no man or woman that he can't conquer or cannot save there is no one that is too far gone to be saved from the power of the gospel as Charles Spurgeon would put it as long as there is breath in one's lungs there is mercy to be had at the foot of the cross the power of God To save is great. So I hope that you have comfort and joy in knowing that truth. That there is no one that God can't save. There may be people in your life. There may be family members. There may be some who have ran off and seem to be making a mockery of God. He can save them. And we should trust in that. And we should hope in that. And we should be praying for that to happen. And we should be praying for those opportunities. To be aware of the opportunities that God gives to us. As the Gospels would remind us, the harvest is plenty, but the workers refuse. So pray to the God of the harvest that he would send us out. It is the power of God to save as Kelsey read this morning, Romans 1.16, right? We are not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to save. The second thing I want us to see is that we can surely trust in this great and sovereign God with every area of our life. The servants of such a high and good and mighty king lack for Nothing. Do you know that this morning? Did you as a son and daughter of God lack for nothing? So we can worship in joy and hope and comfort that there is nothing that the Lord hasn't given to us for our joy and his glory. This is the powerful king we serve. Really it reminds me of that great line in the Chronicles of Narnia, when Susan asks, Aslan is a king? And what does Mr. Beaver say? Oh, he is king. And he is a lion. Actually, I messed that up. I'm sorry. He is a lion. I'm getting caught up. I love it. Anyways, we'll just keep going. He is a lion. And Susan asks, Wait, I thought he was a man. And what does she ask? He, is he quite safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He is the king, I tell you. Jesus is not safe. And to tap into this power that has been given to us, that now resides in us, what, we must, what must we do? We must die to self. The way of tapping into this power as disciples of Jesus Christ is to die to self. Early, early on in chapter 10, a few verses before actually they walk into this triumphal entry, we find James and John requesting to be at the right and left hand of God to receive the highest honor and praise. And what does Jesus say to them? Whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. We continue on in Mark 8. Jesus says, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he says, if anyone would come after me, let them deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The call for the believer to tap into the power is through death. Through sacrifice, through service. And it's so easy for us to get caught up in today's culture where everything is about me, right? Even in our own churches. Now, I'm not knocking people who, or if you have chosen a church based on the look and the aesthetic, if you're here this morning, you definitely haven't come for that. How how the production is done, how the preacher preaches. Oftentimes, we, we can make those choices because it's all about me. But where does Jesus rule from? The cross. And where does his people find power? Through death to self. Suffering, sacrifice, and service. This is where we find power as believers in Christ. It's not that God's power is perfect despite our weaknesses, but it's that it's made perfect in our weaknesses. When we die to self, when we put others before ourselves, This is what the kingdom looks like. This is what Jesus is showing us, that he is a powerful, sovereign God. But he's also showing us that this is what his kingdom and his citizens should look like. The Messiah King has been ushering in, or is ushering in in this passage, what his kingdom looks like. It comes in power, but not a power that the world expects. Not a power that the Israelites expected then, not a power in which Rome expected, and oftentimes not a power that we, in which we expect. Right? He, he flips our thoughts upside down for the kingdom of God. His power comes and is made perfect in weakness when we die to self. The second thing I want you to see about Jesus the king is that he is a king of peace. Look at verses 7 through 10. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Remember from the beginning, Jesus coming on a donkey was a symbol that a king had come. But it's the mere fact that he rode in on this donkey or this colt, specifically, that establishes the type of kingdom that he has come to establish John Calvin says Jesus was intending to show by solemn performance what was the nature of his kingdom in accordance to Zechariah 9 9 that the king would come in peace and connecting this symbol of Zechariah 9 9 which describes this peaceful king Christ appropriates the passage to himself and claims to be the peaceful sovereign king that has come that the Old Testament described again in We should know our Old Testaments, y'all. It's good for us to see these symbols flow through. Now today we might look at a donkey or a mule and think it's not something of significance, but then for someone to claim in their time or to come on a mule would mean that this person is coming in royalty. Because oftentimes how rulers came in the Near East was on a horse, which meant war and authority and power. Most likely, as we look at this Passover week, and we understand as we walk through the Gospels, that Pilate, the ruler in Rome, was actually there as well. if we think about how he would have came into Jerusalem, he most likely would have came in on a horse, as a symbol of his authority, as Rome's authority, to remind the Jews of who they were submitted to. But Jesus comes on a mule. Jesus comes on a donkey to signify that he is coming as a king of peace. And two things that I want you to see about Jesus as he comes as the king of peace and as one who providentially planned coming during the time of Passover. The first is this, that in Passover, there's a lamb that's sacrificed for the atonement of God's people's sins. And what Jesus is doing by coming in the beginning of Passover is drawing attention to the people of Israel that he is that lamb, that peaceful lamb that has come to make peace with God. What he is doing here is desiring for the people of Israel and for us to know and understand the unmistakable importance of of his sin-atoning death as the Lamb of God. And this wasn't by accident. Jesus didn't go, hmm, I didn't know Passover was coming. I'm just going to show up. No, by his providential plan, he comes to Jerusalem to show that he was the true Passover Lamb that was going to die. And apart from this death, and without it, everything is meaningless. J.C. Ryle puts it like this, we want to thank God as believers for the incarnation and birth. We want to treasure up Jesus' gracious sayings and seek to imitate his holy life of serving one another. Let us cherish his blessed intercession and priesthood and look for the second coming. But that one mighty Mysterious work to which our Lord Jesus called the attention of the disciples, to which he calls the attention of the world, to which he calls the attention especially to his own people. The crowning act of God himself is upon the cursed tree as our blessed substitute. And that is what Jesus is trying to symbolize and show to the people of God, that he is that lamb, that atoning Lamb of God who will take on the wrath of God in order that we might receive his righteousness for those who believe. Jesus has made peace between God and us. There is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul goes on to say in Colossians 1, through him to reconciling all things to himself, he made peace through the blood of His cross. Ephesians 2.14 goes on to tell us that Jesus Himself is our peace. And I can go on and on and on from Old Testament and New Testament to show that Christ's substitute has made peace for us between God and man. When there was no peace, He made peace for those who would believe in Him by His sacrificial atoning death on the cross. And that's what we celebrate in Good Friday, right? As, as this week progresses and we get to Good Friday, we are going to be celebrating what Christ has done on the cross. That is, it is no longer I that lives, but Christ in us because our sin has been put on the cross with him. But in Jesus' triumphal entry, what he is doing is preparing the people of God to see that he will be that atoning lamb that is to come. Oh, I pray, guys. I pray through this week as we meditate on this passage, going back to what these scriptures are saying, that we would prize this understanding, this thought, this looking at the cross more dearly. That when we struggle with our sin, that when there is shame brought on us because of the things that we can't put to death, that we would look to the cross. That we would prize the cross more dearly. Because it's at the cross where we see God's love for us. Secondly, I want you to see that Jesus is showing that the peace that He is bringing His King is the peace and humility of His kingdom. He's showing us the nature of His kingdom. And for us, for those who believe in Christ as Savior, This is the nature in which we are to live. This is how we are to live in this world. As I mentioned before, kings of the West and monarchs of the East oftentimes would ride on horses prepared for war to show authority, to show power. But here, the king of kings comes in humility on a donkey, gentle and lowly, showing us the nature of his kingdom. And as ministers of peace, as ambassadors of God, this is how we ought to live. If you guys can remember, as Jesus talks about the Sermon on the Mount, he gives us what the kingdom should look like, and how does it start? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. He goes on and on to say, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. And as citizens of this kingdom, this is how we are to live. Not like Rome, not like the world that seeks power and self preservation and our own strength, but of weakness, of humility, and of peace. Now I will say this, because there is also a symbol of what is to come, and I hope that we can even find hope in this truth. Christ will return one day, but you know what he returns on in that time? A horse to wage war and that war will be over the moment it starts as he is coming to defeat satan once and for all and to claim his people as his own for us to live in the new jerusalem and to worship for eternity where all things will be made new that is the hope that we live in guys that Christ will return and all of the injustices that have been going on, all the hate and spew and racism and and deaths that has been happening, cancer, miscarriage, whatever it might be, hurt, betrayal, shame, it will be gone. And all will be be made new. And I pray that we, like John, as we wake up each day, as we seek to live out what it looks like to be citizens of this kingdom, have also the prayer of Maranatha. That we pray, Lord, come soon. Because we know what's to come. So Jesus is the King of Peace. And finally, Jesus is the King of Presence. And to be honest with you, this is actually one of the more exciting points that I've had this week. All of it was actually pretty exciting as I walked through this text, I promise you. But what I find really significant about this last verse in this text is it shows us something of historical Old Testament trajectory. And again, as I've repeated over and over, I think it's important for us to know our Old Testament so that we can pick up on these symbols and things that are happening in the New Testament, especially in the life of Jesus. So let me read verse 11 one more time. And we can see how odd this might be and try to make sense of it. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, I don't know about you, upon first or second reading of this verse, it's like, okay, Mark, why why did you have to put that there? What was the importance of telling us that Jesus came into the temple and then went back to Bethany? We understand the triumphal entry. We understand that Jesus is saying that He's coming as a king. He is coming in peace. That He is the coming Lamb of God and ready for His kingdom. But again beating that importance of the Old Testament, it's important for us to see these trajectories that we find. So I'm going to try to do this very quickly and explain it as best as I can, and hopefully the Holy Spirit will enlighten us this morning. So in Ezekiel 11, we find that the king of Israel has finally left the temple, which I hope you can already see where this is going. But for four chapters, in Ezekiel 6, 7, 8, 9, and even into 10 and 11, Ezekiel has been telling Israel that they are about to receive the coming judgments of God. Yes, in Ezekiel 11 we find the beautiful salvation promise that he will make the heart of stone into a heart of flesh, but sandwiched on the outside of that promise are judgments that would come to Israel And finally, at the end of chapter 11 in verse 23, Ezekiel says that you will see the glory of the Lord, which is the presence of God. You will see that glory leave the temple and go to the east over the mountains and settle there. And what it is symbolizing is the presence of God has left the people of God. And that's important for us to understand because when God's presence leaves His people, there's a tragedy Right Throughout the Old Testament, God's presence or the glory of God has been the people of God's blessing. Right? The blessing in the Garden of Eden is that Adam and Eve got to walk with God. That was their blessing. Exodus 40, we see as God walks Israel through the wilderness, the glory of God comes in a cloud and a pillar of fire, and that is his presence, and that is their blessing. In First Kings 18, in Second Chronicles 5, we see the story of God's presence in these places being a blessing to the people of God. So to have God's presence removed is actually the greatest judgment that we could find in Ezekiel 11 for the people of God. Now you may be saying, okay, Josh, but what does this have to do with Mark 11? And what does this have to do with Jesus being king? And what does this have to do with his presence? Those are all fair questions and I'm glad you're asking them. You see, in Mark 11, as we have seen Jesus, the Son of God filled with the Spirit, where does he come from? He comes from Bethany, which is on the east, from the Mount of Olives. And then he proceeds down into Jerusalem. You see, it's the reversal of Ezekiel 11 that is happening. And as he looks around He fulfills the prophecy in Malachi 3.1 that says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, which, that's John the Baptist, and a Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. What is verse 11? It seems like he's just suddenly coming to his temple. As you see Jesus looking around, that phrase that Mark uses is not one of curiosity. He's not coming in and going, hmm, this is a good worship service, or hmm, there's a hundred people here this morning. No, what he is doing, as Mark declares he is looking around, he's making an assertion that this is mine. He is asserting his own authority, and in the act of this, he is taking possession of his father's house and claiming dominion over it, and by doing so, he retires the temple. There's one professor I heard say it this week, The temple is in Miami right now sipping Mai Tais because he has been retired. I want you to catch this. Jesus the King was coming from the place that the presence of God had left to enter the temple, to fulfill the prophecies, to purify the temple and to retire it. To say that this thing, this temple has turned into something else This temple where God's presence resided is no longer. And he's now pointing to himself and saying, God's presence resides in me. And I hope that you can see that those who are in Christ, his presence now resides in you. You see, when reading Ezekiel 11, leading up to the judgment, the salvation that we find in verse 36 makes no sense And it only makes sense in the coming of Christ and in the coming of the Spirit of God that says the temple is no longer the place where God's presence is found, but I am. And that's what Jesus is saying as he enters into this temple. And the beautiful reality that we have as believers in Christ, that when we are united to him, that this presence now resides in us. The same power that conquered the grave now lives in me. What a blessing. What a blessing we have. What a comfort and truth that we have. That Christ now resides in us. That his presence now dwells within us. That we no longer need to go to a temple to worship and to be in the presence of God. We no longer need to have a priest that is in front of us, atoning for our sins. That has all been done through Jesus, our great King. And guys, it's still nothing compared to what will come in the new heavens and the new earth. When we will be in God's presence for eternity. Like the old hymn says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining like the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. How marvelous. How wonderful that the triumph of Jesus didn't bring what the people of God thought it would bring in the king that they thought would overthrow Rome. But the promised Messiah came for the greatest need that they had and the greatest need that we have and that is to be given peace between us and God. Our greatest need of sin needed to be atoned for and Jesus does that for us. And not only does he do that in power and he brings us into peace with God, but now he resides in us with his presence. And as we close this morning, as we take communion, what we celebrate every week in communion is this truth. You see, what's happening when we take this ordinance this sacrament as we will hear in a moment is not just symbolic we are remembering what christ did on the cross by shedding his blood and the breaking of his body but the presence of christ is here as we rehearse what we will be doing for eternity and glory at the supper of the lamb What we celebrate as believers in communion is that Christ dwells within us. That's the hope of glory. So when we take this bread and when we drink this cup of juice and we eat it and we drink it and we are being reminded by the Spirit that Christ is in us, that the temple is now retired and that we are now empowered and have the presence of Christ within us. That's why we do this every week. It's because we need that reminder. We need the reminder of our union with Christ. Because we are so prone to forget. Prone to wander. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 11. And then we're going to take the supper together. And then I'll close in prayer. And then we're going to continue worshiping what Christ has done for us. What Jesus, the King, has done for us. In power, he conquered sin and death. Making a way for us to have peace between God and ourselves. And gives us his presence that now resides in us. So 1 Corinthians 11 says this. Let us celebrate his death this morning in taking communion. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you that you are a king who comes with power. Power over sin and death. Power over this world. And you give us power through the peace of your Son that he dwells within us and that empowers us to say no to sin It empowers us to live in such a way that we reflect and represent that we are citizens of God, that we live pursuing peace, that we live with meekness and gentleness, and we live as this world would see weak, but we know that there is power in weakness. And so, Lord, I pray that as we hear this story of the triumphal entry and we see the announcements that Christ is making as he is entering into Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday, this Passion Week, as he walks towards the cross to secure his kingdom, help us to be reminded of these truths that we see this morning and help them inflame our hearts to live as citizens of this kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at